Welcome to the Veterans Defender Podcast. I'm your host, Attorney A.D. Winters, founder and managing attorney of VeteransDefender.com and Winters and Associates, PLLC. You can always reach us at Veterans Defender on Instagram or just call our office at 877-7-WINNERS. That's 877-704-6837. Now, this podcast, this uh, video is not uh, constitute does not constitute legal advice. It is not intended to constitute legal advice. It is for general informational purposes only. We have a really exciting uh, show to kind of talk about today in this podcast. Um, today is um, going to be really exciting. So Veterans Defender, the name says it all. Veterans Defender is committed to helping our fellow warriors and their families. Veterans Defender is um, focused and designed to help veterans uh, and their disabilities. It's a large part of our practice area. You can go to our website, veteransdefender.com, to learn more. Um, today's Veterans Defender podcast, you know, just go to this website, Veterans Defender. Uh, that's behind me here, veteransdefender.com, A777 Winters. But uh, today's podcast is real simple. We're talking about uh, the story of this lieutenant in 1944 in the United States Army. And we're comparing it to what makes America great, considering today's COVID-19 and, and kind of all that's happening. So we want to, uh, without further ado, we want to kind of jump right into this one. There's five questions that we pose, uh, we, we pose to, uh, and we're poised to kind of jump into to have a discussion about these five questions are, what makes the United States great? For my opinion, I'm going to share what I think makes America great. And what will constitute, what will continue to make America great? And if America falls short of these components that I think um, makes America great, what is America still considered great? And what are some of the best practices uh, to fulfill what I think these components are in order to gain American greatness? Um, Will America be able to reassume um, the moral compass or lead, lean forward and lead the world if it loses these these components, if it has lost these components. Um, that's what we want to discuss. But I want to discuss it um, vis-a-vis the lens of um, this lieutenant. I want to talk about this lieutenant. And so before I get into those five questions, it's important, it's incumbent upon me to really give you this story, you know, I would settle in, I would get a nice uh, sip of something to drink and let's enjoy this story. This lieutenant was at Camp Hood in 1944. This lieutenant was wrongfully court-martialed in 1944. Uh, and to understand what a court-martial is, a court-martial um is a military court. It usually consists of a panel of commissioned officers who conduct um, a criminal trial. There are three uh, types of court martials. You have a summary court martial, a special court martial, and a general court martial. Those are the three court martials. Then you can Google and learn more. If you think Jack, think uh, A Few Good Men with uh, Tom Cruise uh, there in the movie. That was a court martial. So Uh, This lieutenant faced a general court-martial. Had he been found guilty, the whole um, course of black participation and the deeper grains of the American society, as well as modern civil rights, uh, the modern civil rights movement, 
um, most probably would have been profoundly impacted adversely. Um, but the circumstances of the court martial only added to this lieutenant's credentials as one of the true pioneers of the American greatness. Now, I know you may say a court martial changed the fabric of our uh, society and, and African Americans in this country, and it's not overstated. This is what I refer to as the American greatest quandary, the American greatness quandary. Uh, now, during this time, uh, when this lieutenant was court-martialed, America found itself in a global warfare embroiled in two dis distant fronts, you know. So this this war has promised to be a prolonged and total conflict, one demanding the use of all resources, human and otherwise. So total war is a, that means you use everything. It's total war. All of factors of production, all the factories, everything is used in this effort. Um, as Allies troops continued their drive into the heart of Europe a month after the D-Day landing in 1944, an incident that would provide a, a preview of the post-World War II events in America was unfolding near Colleen, Texas, uh, at Camp Hood, now Fort Hood. This Army officer can, um, was attached to the famed 761st Tank Battalion, which is the famous um, African-American tank battalion that was there at the Battle of the Bulge uh, for resisting. This is what he was subjected to a general court martial for, for resisting the usual Southern protocol and refusing to move to the back of the bus uh, on a military post when directed uh, by the driver to do so. Now, the military had already changed his policy. There was no discrimination to be had on these buses. Uh, on post. And so on July 6, 1944, exactly one month after D-Day, June 6, 1944 was D-Day, exactly one month uh, after the D-Day assault landings, which blacks had, uh, black soldiers had participated in, the lieutenant was forcibly reminded of how thoroughly Jim Crow still dominated the scene. As he was returning that evening, um, that evening from to the hospital, uh, the Southwestern Bus Company driver, Milton Renegar, um, brusquely instructed uh, the lieutenant to move to a seat farther in the back from one where he had sat next to a fellow officer's light-skinned wife. This was a, a fellow African-American um, officer, and his wife, Miss Virginia Jones, was, was fair-skinned. The bus driver thought she was white. The lieutenant um, perhaps conscious of being an officer and a husky one, uh, refused, suggesting that the driver tend to driving. Why don't you just focus on driving, buddy? Uh, lieutenants, the lieutenant's sharpness of response may have been uh, at least partially attributable to uh, the recollection of previous bus incidents um, that, that African-Americans um, on Fort Hood saw this as a pattern of unfairness. So, as one of the 761st, his fellow uh, officers, uh, this, this black battalion, uh, one of his fellow officers of this lieutenant, uh, this is how he remembered. He said, there were so many problems with the bus situation that battalion commanders and company commanders of, of their unit had just started saying, y'all can use the trucks to go to town at will because um, they didn't want to go through all of this mess on the bus where their, their soldiers, these warriors, these heroes, 
America's veterans are being treated um, unfair because of the color, immutable characteristic like the color of their skin. Later at this same bus stop, this lieutenant and the driver continue to argue, joined by the uh, the, the driver's bus um, dispatcher, uh, Beverly Younger, uh, who casually referred to this lieutenant and his and the lieutenant's presence as a nigger. When military police arrived uh, at the scene, a crowd of indignant whites, both civilian and military, had formed, adding turmoil to the confusion. MPs on site, uh, none of whom I ranked the lieutenant, asked the lieutenant to go with them to the police headquarters to straighten out this whole mess, this whole situation. And the lieutenant agreed. He agreed to do so. Okay, I'll go with you guys. Let's go. And thinking that they could resolve this. He's an officer. He's a gentleman. He could go and resolve this. So when he got to the to the MP station, military police station, to meet with the camps, uh, Camp Hood's assistant provost marshal, a white MP ran up to the vehicle, excitedly inquired if they had the nigger lieutenant. The utterance of this unexpected and especially offensive racial epithet served to set the lieutenant off, and he threatened to break into anyone who used this language or employed this, whatever their rank, if they use that language again, he was going to break them into. Inside the building, further exposure to what he regarded as racially unfriendly remarks, unwarranted observations um, by those who were convinced that the, the lieutenant, that he was not going to be treated fairly, observing the clumsy wielding of authority by the, the assistant provost uh, marshal and the officer of the day and questioning the witnesses, the lieutenant alleged uh, and, and claiming that the lieutenant had allegedly conducted himself in a sloppy and contemptuous uh, manner toward them. So he, he recognized that this was going to be some sort of kangaroo, a sham process. Um, so after he vehemently contradicted the other uh, people's versions of what had happened on the bus uh, uh, in the incident, he failed to remain in the facility until uh, called to give his own account. He was taken back to the hospital under guard and under protest. He subsequently learned that this behavior of his, quote unquote, was was so spectacular and correct that he would be subjected to this general court martial that I alluded to earlier. The justification was given that he had committed a number of monstrously uh, serious transgressions, including the show of disrespect toward a superior officer, a failure to obey um, a direct command. 13 depositions have been taken um, against the lieutenant and alleging that he had gross misbehavior. Believing these charges to be contrived and racially most motivated, the lieutenant set out to broadcast his account uh, of what happened. He, he and others, uh, other lieutenants, other officers, other uh, people in his unit, they contacted an NAACP and, uh, and saw publicity from the Negro press. A letter to the secretary of the NAACP um, um, from one of his fellow officers known as Anonymous uh, the whole, he said, the whole business was cooked up uh, in order to try to get an insubordination charge levied against him, uh, against this lieutenant. According to the anonymous person, the lieutenant's predicament amounted to a typical effort to intimidate Negro officers and to uh, intimidate the enlisted men at Hood and their surrounding areas. 
it was done uh, because it wasn't going to be an independent uh, investigation uh, that could be done. So this was designed to come after uh, this lieutenant and it was cooking up this whole business and it showed you how rotten it was. Now, from this hospital, General Hospital, what McCloskey, General Hospital there for Hood was uh, where he was convened. Um, the lieutenant wrote to the War Department's civil, uh, civilian um, aid, the, the, the aid to the secretary of the War Department. To understand what the War Department is, the War Department is what the Pentagon is now. The War Department is actually next door to the White House. You got this, the Treasury Department on one side and you got the the War Department on the other side, and that's now called the Executive Office Building, but that used to be the War Department next door. You had Treasury money on one side, the War on the other side, the ink and the sword, uh, the, the, the ink and the sword. So um, then then now, and that's now the Pentagon, the Department of Defense is what we call it now, but the War Department. Uh, he wrote this letter to Mr. Truman Gibson, uh, that aide, the civilian aide, in a three-page handwritten letter expressing concern but not panic, this lieutenant asked Gibson uh, if the newspaper should be notified of the trumped-up charges and that he uh, that he wanted the, the larger world to know and be aware of Texas and, and as uh, what was happening there at Camp Hood as Texas was one of the four states accountable for more than half of all blacks lynched uh, through the years possessed a chronically inflamed racial climate. Um, this and, and they had this what's called so-called justice was obtained from a uh, frontier style. Um, he admitted the lieutenant admitted to using strong language. But to give you pause about it, one of the, the stories that I remember, I was stationed for it twice. So one of the stories about Fort Hood is that um, they used to put it in the paper years and years ago, back in this time in the, you know, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, and, and so on, and then they, uh, in the 20th century, that they were posted, this is good white man country. So they're inviting more people to come to come to white man's country is what they, they kind of refer to this portion of central Texas. Uh, Fort Hood is a massive, it's 300 square miles. Um, it is a massive, massive uh, facility. Uh, one of the largest in the world. Um, the largest in the United States uh, arsenal of, of bases, but it is the one of the largest in the world. And so to think about it, one of the the horrible acronyms that they talk about, Colleen is spelled K-I-L-L-E-E-N, K-I-L-L-E-E-N. And, and when I first got there in 2007, someone told me that they refer to Colleen as kill each and every nigger. Colleen kill each and every nigger and that's what it what it stands for because of this racial energy that was in 1944 this is in 2007 when i first went and that's when it was told to me uh, now to be fair colleen has a lot of great things that happened the current administration of the mayor and all of the leadership there those people work hard but this this energy that was there then i could all you know when I, when i met it in 2007 and some of those those instances. Imagine what it was like in 1944 that this particular lieutenant had had gone through. Now, uh, what what they did next after they told him about these charges, the lieutenant was transferred to the 758 tank battalion, away from the 761st to the 758 tank battalion. And on July 24th, 
where the commander's son orders to prosecute him. And on that day, he was arrested. Uh, one author writes that at 1.45 in the afternoon on August the 2nd, the case of the United States versus the second lieutenant, 0-103-15861, Cavalry uh, Company C, 758 Tank Battalion, began. The lieutenant's fate was in the hand, fate was in the hand of nine men, eight of them white, one was black, which was another, uh, the, the black one, uh, juror happened to be a former UCLA student where the lieutenant that we're talking about was an undergraduate. Six votes were needed for a conviction. Only six out of nine, not all nine, what were needed for the conviction. And so what what happens next is really it's interesting. He was charged with two. Uh, two charges were uh, preferred. The first was a violation of Article of War uh, number 63, accused him of behaving with disrespect toward Captain Bear, the the military police and the assistant provost marshal, um, and that the second charge was a violation of Article number 64, willful disobedience of lawful command of this uh, Captain Bear. Now, Three other charges were dropped before the trial began. A testimony reveals how this lieutenant uh, fought to defend himself on the evening. He hired a, um, um, he ended up having, he did not hire outside counsel, outside lawyer. He hired, he had a military lawyer appointed to him that was from Texas and he had this military lawyer appointed for him. Uh, The testimony that they put against him said he, on the evening of the incident, including reportedly saying quite heroically, look here, you son of a bitch. Don't you call me no nigger. After a four hour trial um, with this this uh, lieutenant who was this uh, captain that he had as his his lawyer, they were able to uh, destroy some of those witnesses who had gave all of this false information um, anyway. And they were able to get all of that information and they end up winning the trial, meaning that he had at least four people that secretly and wrote down that he was not guilty. They acquitted him of the charges. Really, he needed four people to say he, they did not find him uh, guilty, and he ultimately did. Uh, he was found not guilty on all specification and charges. These are the facts of this lieutenant's military career, which virtually no one knows uh, or rarely discusses today. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason this is important is because it's April and April baseball season typically happens, um, save the exception of this COVID-19. And so in baseball season, as it kicks off, uh, one of the first things that they do in the beginning of the baseball season is they celebrate this lieutenant. It may sound strange. Why do we celebrate this lieutenant? Most Americans today hear the lieutenant's name and they celebrate in awe because on April 15, 1947, at Ebbetsville in Brooklyn, New York, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, at the age of 28, Lieutenant Jack Roosevelt Robinson, broke the color barrier in baseball. During a relatively short career spanning only nine years, Lieutenant Robinson um, was rookie of the year in 1947, most valuable player in 1949, took his team to the World Series six times, made the All-Star team six times. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1962, an unprecedented gesture 
his enormous historical significance and prowess as an athlete, he's Major League Baseball has retired his whole number. Nobody wears number 42, and we celebrate that. They, they retired his number in 1997. Uh, there's been movies about Jackie Robinson. There's been uh, the 1940, uh, there was a 42 movie. There's a um, there's so many things about this great man. He writes his own autobiography. It's a great story. You can hear uh, Cornell West writing one of the, the four words in it. Um, this was the first time any athlete in any sport had had their number retired by all the sport itself, Major League Baseball. Uh, so I'll take you back to my original question. What makes America great? What makes the U.S. great? The, what will continue to make the U.S. great if America falls short of those components is America still great? What are some of the best practices to fulfill for America striving for that greatness? And will America be able to reassume that moral compass and lean forward and lead the world if it loses those components? So to the first question, what makes America great? What makes America great? In paper, in theory, America is great because it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. That's it. You can stop the show. That's what makes America great. You come in with a premise on paper, on theory, on principle, you say this is what makes America great, that all men and women are created equal. You have the underlying premise that says all of us, out of many, all of us are equal. And with that in mind, I believe that that's what makes America great. I didn't say America is great alone, but I said that's what makes America great. Now, what will continue to make America great? The only thing that can make America great or continue to make America great is the fulfillment of that underlying principle. The fulfillment. You have to fulfill it. You can't say you're fulfilling it and then people are being shot. An African-American uh, youth was shot in Metairie outside of New Orleans at three o'clock in the morning for allegedly by this off-duty police officer, there's no such thing as an off-duty police officer, this police officer shoots outside of his house into the street because there's a group of guys out at three. The, the arresting police chief comes out and says that they're treating the shooter as a victim and a suspect. And then he gets down on why are the kids out at three o'clock in the morning. We're talking about somebody has been shot. There's nothing to discuss when it comes to there's a actual victim. And as a police officer, you you don't have any opinion on it. You state the facts, you provide those facts and move on. No one needs any of your dialogue, that that extemporaneous dialogue. But uh, to answer this question, America can continue to be great if it fulfills the first answer. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And if you treat everybody the same, then that wouldn't even come out of your mouth 
Uh, and that's just one of the various examples. We had a doctor that was just arrested. He was held and detained in front of his own home for moving boxes in front of his own home by a policeman who had no idea, didn't have a mask on, didn't have anything in his COVID-19, and he just wanted to arrest him. He uses the lame excuse of, oh, I, 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 I've heard rumors of blah, blah, blah. You were not on a call. You stopped and detained. This American, while we're trying to be great, all men are created equal. You cannot accomplish that if every routine, rooty pooty person that gets a badge gets to go out and just and restrict Americans like this person did. No big whoop, no big protest from all these protesters who want to open up barbershops and and uh, go back out uh, in this COVID situation. They didn't go protest for this doctor when he was, you know, falsely detained and arrested. Um, the third question is, if America falls short of those components, is America still great? That's a very puzzling question. That's a very puzzling question. I believe if America does not hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, then, then if I said that was the purpose, that was the fundamental principle that made America great, then it's no longer great. Then it's no longer great. You're talking about veterans defender. You're talking about a person who has served 23 years in the army. You're talking about a person who served as a prosecutor for 12 years. And I'm telling you that we have to live up to those, those promises, those components in order for America to be great. And if you're a true American, you are saying the same thing. But if you're not, if you're not saying the same thing on this front, then I'm telling you, you don't want America to be great. What are some of the best practices to fulfill this American greatness? Treat everybody equal. Treat Americans fairly. Don't do this foolishness. Or you're not going to be great. You're not great if you don't treat Americans fairly and equal. Will America be able to reassume the moral compass? lean forward and lead the world without those components no no because you lose your credibility you lose your credibility when you aren't treating people equal you lose your credibility when people are dying of COVID-19 because of their socioeconomic when they're losing uh, uh, they're losing our lives to COVID-19 because of the immutable characteristic of the color of their skin. They're being redlined. They can't get access to good jobs. Can't get uh, the, the corporate financing to be able to launch their own companies. Uh, they can't get these contracts. They can't get these things by and large on an equal basis. They can't get jobs with insurance. They can't start their own companies and provide insurance to people uh, in their communities and launch companies in their own communities. But America can beat this. As we continue to strive for equality, as we continue to lean forward, and then we can inspire others, then we can lean forward. Um, and that's when we can really do it. You know, is all a loss? Is all is all loss? Nope. It's not over. So don't sit with gloom and doom that this is a gloom and doom show. One of the highlights of this week, just like a highlight uh, this month with us celebrating Lieutenant Jack Roosevelt Robinson is one of the highlights um, that just happened 
The United States Supreme Court in Ramos versus Louisiana asked the question in its recent decision in the court case. The issue was, why does Louisiana and Oregon allow non-unanimous verdicts? Why did they allow that? For serious crimes. And they ruled to say that that was illegal. It was a plurality vote, so it wasn't some strong majority. If, if we got into the details of who all voted for it and how we end up passing this as the new law of the land from the high court, uh, it would blow your mind that Gorsuch and <laughs> you had Gorsuch and you had Thomas and you had Sotomayor and you had Ginsburg, you had, oh man, it was just held to skelter every, you know, Breyer, every was all over the place. So this was a very interesting case and you got to read it. Uh, it's 80 some odd pages long, but Ramos versus Louisiana just came out and answered the question. It says, um, though it's hard to, to say why these laws persist, their origins were very clear. Louisiana first endorsed non-unanimous verdicts for serious crimes as a constitutional convention in 1898. According to one committee chairman, the avowed purpose of the convention was to establish the supremacy of the white race. And the resulting document included many of the trappings of the Jim Crow era, a poll tax, a combined literacy and property ownership test, and a grandfather clause that in practice exempted white citizen residents um, from the most onerous of these requirements. That was in Louisiana. Very similar there in Oregon. Some of these KKK, this is according to the Supreme Court, these KKK-based um, policies that were put in place to marginalize um, African Americans and elders in, uh, in the community. And neither state argue with the Supreme Court, according to the court, neither state argues against the facts that both Louisiana and Oregon, the only two states with a non-unanimous jury for serious crimes, have frankly acknowledged that uh, race was a motivating factor. Not only did they not argue, but the courts in those states have acknowledged that race was a motivating factor in the adoption of states' respective uh, non-unanimity uh, rules. And so the Supreme Court has now overturned that. And all those people get to have a fair trial. The Supreme Court even addressed that, said it's going to be costly for those people that were convicted in non-unanimous trials. Uh, it's going to be extremely costly to retry those cases and let those people come in for another day. The Supreme Court said they understand that. But usually justice reform, criminal justice reform is expensive. Read the cases, 88-page case. Uh, I'd love to have a deep dive and talk about it, but that's a great thing, and that's a step in the right direction to making America great, keeping that promise that we talked about that says that self-evident that all men are created equal. And this is part of the establishment of equality. Jackie Robinson stood up for it, but 11 years before uh, Rosa Parks, he refused to go back to the back of the bus. Um, um, and this is what changes. In this day of COVID-19, America has become, has to do one thing. We have to become that beacon and that shining city on a hill of truth and unbiased science that the rest of the world can rally around 
in order to collectively solve this crisis and get better uh, together. We can heal together. And we have to live in the spirit of that Lieutenant Jack Roosevelt Robinson, but we have to stand up and stand up to this oppression, that of ignorance, that oppression of hate, that oppression of just unwilling to work together. We can do this. And that's what's gonna make America great. Not this foolishness of hate and vitriol. What's gonna make America great is living like these veterans that did in World War II and everybody come together for total eradication of this COVID-19. So we can do this and I'll leave you with this. as the you know the plurality of, of the Supreme Court of the United States has you know has kind of revealed to us and us working together in our better united selves. There's one thing that's on on a lot of our money. It says "E pluribus una," out of many, one. It's Latin for out of many, one. There's 330 million Americans. There's 800 as of today, there's 800 and some odd thousand Americans that have been infected with COVID-19. Over 50,000 deaths. Think about that, 50,000 deaths. Out of many, one, e pluribus unum. If we come together, stay socially distant, we're through this thing together, and we can get through this together if we we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal in this country. You pluribus unum. That's the way that America can be great again. Out of many, we're one. Thank you. If you need anything, go to veteransdefender.com or just call us at 877-7-WINTERS. Uh, this, you know, we thank you for listening to the Veterans Defender podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this show. Uh, I'm your host, A.D. Winters, founder and managing attorney of VeteransDefender.com and uh, Winters and Associates. Uh, Follow us on social media at Veterans Defender or call us at the office again at 877-7-WINTERS. Our mantra is simple. Defend veterans' rights. Uh, We are here to help, whether it's the veterans' disability uh, claims and notices of disagreements and appeals. Uh, or veterans and their service and service members and all of their legal needs. Our main office is in the heart of downtown Baton Rouge uh, in one American place tower on the 22nd floor was looking the majestic Mississippi River. Uh, thank you and have a great day.